Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Airs LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is titled, Surgeons Perform World's First Whole Eye Transplant by Ginger Adams Otis. Then John Kogan and Daniel Heil have an article, Older Americans Are Better Off Than Ever. Brianna Abbott wrote, Loneliness Tied to Death Risk Study Finds. And then Ben Zimmer article is out of pocket, unavailable, strapped for cash, or going wild. And we'll follow that up with an article by Jenny Tates, The Power of Your Exercise Mindset. All these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first article, Surgeons Perform World's First Whole Eye Transplant. A team of New York surgeons has performed the world's first whole eye transplant on a human, a development that could change vision treatments even though the patient hasn't regained sight in the grafted eye. In the six months since the eye surgery, performed in in conjunction with a partial face transplant, the 46-year-old patient has shown promising signs of health in the eye the surgical team at NYU Langone Health said. The grafted eye is maintaining normal ocular pressure and has direct blood flow to the retina, the area at the back of the eye that receives light and sends images to the brain. It isn't known if the patient will regain his sight, but the transplant is still significant, according to Dr. Eduardo Rodriguez, director of the face transplant program at NYU Langone. Rodriguez led the May surgery, which lasted 21 hours and included more than 140 surgeons, nurses, and other healthcare professionals. Whole eye transplants to restore vision have remained elusive because of the challenges associated with nerve regeneration, immune rejection, and retinal blood flow, the NYU Langone team said. The results are a stepping stone, said Dr. Nicholas Mahoney, Associate Professor of Ophthalmology at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. It's amazing as a proof of concept, but the nerve that connects the eye to the brain is hard to fix once broken, he said. The patient, Aaron James of Hot Springs, Arkansas, survived a 7,200-volt electric shock while working as a linesman in June 2021. He suffered extensive injuries when his face touched the live wire. James initially received care at a Texas medical center where he underwent multiple surgeries. Surgeons there eventually removed his left eye because of severe pain. The NYU Langone team was introduced to his case two months after his injury. When Texas surgeons realized the left eye had to be removed, Rodriguez and his team recommended the optic nerve be cut as close to the eyeball as possible. This preserved as much nerve length as possible with the hope of a potential transplant later. At the same time, doctors began to plan for an eye transplant in conjunction with a partial face transplant. 
James Grafted Eye was received from an organ donor. About nine days post-transplant, blood was pumping through the eye, the medical team said. It was really getting a good flow and good oxygen to the entire retina through the retinal circulation. And that was really, really remarkable, said Vadehi Dedania, an associate professor of ophthalmology at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine. Dr. Jeffrey Goldberg, professor and chair of ophthalmology at Breyer's Eye Institute at Stanford University, said the surgery showed what might be possible with more resources. We're still trying to address the science of how to integrate the transplanted eye to grow back within the proper center of the brain, and in particular, not to interfere with the parts of the brain for the good eye of the patient and other parts of the brain, Goldberg said. And now, older Americans are better off than ever. Wednesday's recent Republican presidential debate confirmed that the issue of Social Security reform isn't going away. But missing from the debate is some important context. The good life for senior citizens has never been better. Newly released Federal Reserve data revealed that the seniors' financial well-being is the best in United States history. Private markets and individual initiative, not Social Security, have been the driving forces behind seniors' high income and wealth. We use the Federal Reserve data to analyze four decades of income growth. We found that the inflation-adjusted income of the median household, headed by someone 65 or older, rose by 94% from 1982 to 2021. The increase was nearly three times the 35% increase among younger households. For most of United States history, incomes of senior households have been well below those of younger households. But after adjusting for relevant differences, seniors live in smaller households and pay a lower portion of their income in taxes, this is no longer the case. As of 2018, the adjusted median household income of seniors equaled that of younger households. In 2021, despite COVID, seniors' adjusted income continued to equal that of younger households. Senior income growth has been broad-based, occurring across all education levels, household types, and income distribution. Most noticeably, over the past four decades, incomes of the poorest 25% of senior households grew faster than those of middle-income senior households. Also, the inflation-adjusted median income of senior households, headed by people 75 and older, increased by 140%. The growth in seniors' household income is matched by an increase in their wealth. The typical senior household's inflation-adjusted net wealth in mid-2022 was nearly 200% higher than it was in 1983. Households headed by people now 55 to 64 are positioned to continue this improvement. Their median wealth level is more than double that of today's retirees when they were the same age. Seniors' remarkable financial status today is primarily thanks to decades of saving as well as continuing to work later in life. The increase in income from investing household savings and higher earnings from working past 65 account for 80% of the growth in the average senior household's income. News reports said 
that said baby boomers weren't saving enough for retirement were wrong. Government policies to encourage younger workers to save for retirement and older workers to work longer have played an important role. The revolutionary changes in the retirement savings landscape ushered in by the creation of individual retirement accounts in 1974 and 401ks in 1978 and their subsequent expansions were crucial to the growth in private savings. Employment among seniors reversed its long-term secular decline in the late 1980s for women and in the mid-1990s for men, and it steadily rose thereafter to 2019. Part of this reversal is due to greater work incentives created by changes in tax policy and a reduced Social Security employment penalty. Since the sharp decline during the pandemic, seniors' employment growth has returned and is likely to persist. The employment rate of senior women has already returned to its pre-pandemic level, and the employment rate of senior men has recovered nearly two-thirds of its decline during the pandemic. For the majority of seniors, Social Security has played a minor role in income growth. The typical senior household today enjoys Social Security benefits that have twice the purchasing power of benefits received by the average household in 1982. Yet because private savings and labor income have grown so much, Social Security's contribution to income growth has been relatively small. Had Social Security benefits remained at their inflation-adjusted 1982 level, the typical senior household's income would still have increased by 78%, more than twice as fast as the income of the typical younger household. Social Security remains vital for lower-income seniors, but for upper-income ones, merely enhances their already comfortable lives. Despite this, the program's benefit formula means the wealthiest seniors receive the biggest monthly checks. In 2021, the richest 10% of seniors received more than twice as much from Social Security as the bottom 10%. Maintaining healthy financial trends for senior citizens requires robust labor and capital markets. Keeping tax rates on work, savings, and capital formation low is the best way to ensure that these gains continue. This includes not only lowering tax rates on workers, but reforming disability insurance and other safety net programs to remove provisions that penalize work and savings. Lawmakers should also lift burdensome regulations that undermine private initiative and investments. The recently enacted SECURE Act 2.0, which makes it easier for employers to offer 401k plans, was a good step. The main threat to labor and capital markings is the rising national debt. Since Social Security, Medicare, and other programs that assist seniors account for about 40% of non-interest federal spending, the growth in the national debt can't be curtailed without reforming these programs. The high level of financial well-being enjoyed by most seniors provides Congress and the next president with an opportunity for reform. And now, loneliness tied to death risk study finds. If you think handling plans is always good self-care, you might want to think again. People who keep an active social calendar not only enjoy a better quality of life, 
they could also stave off an early trip to the grave. Loneliness and social isolation were linked to an increased risk of death from any cause, according to new research. That includes missing out on seeing loved ones, not having weekly group activities like a book club, or just often feeling lonely. Just like we need to make time in our busy lives to be physically active, we need to make time in our busy lives to be socially active said Julian Holt-Lundstad, director of the Social Connection and Health Lab at Brigham Young University, who was not involved in the report. A combination of several loneliness factors could be even more harmful, the data suggested. For example, having few family and friend visits was riskier when the person also lived alone. The study, published recently in the medical journal BMC Medicine, tracked people for more than a decade and collected loneliness data before the COVID-19 pandemic. It adds to increasing evidence that loneliness can be bad for our health, contributing to health problems including anxiety, heart disease, and dementia. It is hard to think of a health condition that is not impacted by loneliness, said Dr. Carla Perisinotto, a geriatric and palliative care physician at the University of California, San Francisco, who was not involved in this most recent study. Americans are now spending more time alone and less time socializing in person compared with two decades ago, a trend that started taking hold even before the pandemic. A 2023 Gallup poll found that 17% of United States adults and nearly a quarter of adults under the age of 30 reported feeling a significant amount of loneliness the day before they took the survey. Health officials are taking notice. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy put out an advisory report on loneliness and social isolation back in May, citing research that suggests that lacking social connection could be as dangerous as smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. In the new paper, researchers at the University of Glasgow analyzed data from more than 450,000 participants in the UK Biobank database. The participants, aged 38 to 73, answered questions about their social connectedness. After around 12 and a half years, some 33,000 had died, including more than 5,000 from cardiovascular disease. The researchers looked at five measures for loneliness and isolation, often feeling lonely, not being able to confide in a close companion, living alone, how often people visit with friends and family, and weekly group activities. All of them had an impact. When we're asking people how socially connected or isolated they are, we need to ask more than one question, said Jason Gills, one of the paper's authors and a professor of cardiometabolic health at the University of Glasgow. The strongest link was for people who were never visited by family and friends, which was associated with a 39% increase in death during the study period compared with those with daily visits. Those who had at least monthly friend and family visits had a lower risk of dying, the researchers said. Some benefits of social connection are practical, such as having someone to pick medications up or take you to and from doctor's appointments. But the consequences of loneliness cut deeper, 
Chronic feelings of loneliness can also hurt a person's sleep and are linked to bodily inflammation, which can contribute to a range of diseases. This uncomfortable distressed feeling of being lonely over time has a negative effect, said Antonio Terraciano, a professor in geriatrics at Florida State University College of Medicine, who also was not involved with the study. In a separate study, Tiraciano and his colleagues analyzed data from some 490,000 UK biobank participants and found that loneliness was connected to an increased risk of developing Parkinson's disease. The results were published in the journal JAMA Neurology back in October. Other research has implicated loneliness and increased risk for higher blood pressure, stroke, and depression. One study even found that adults living alone might be at an increased risk of dying from cancer, while another suggested that loneliness could increase the risk of death for cancer survivors. People can now have different preferences for how they want to socialize, researchers said, and the number of social connections someone has isn't always an end goal in itself. The quality of those relationships matters. Is it someone that is going to be there even if nothing is needed, will sit with you, and you can be comfortable because you have complete trust in them, said Louise Hockley, a health and loneliness researcher at NORC at the University of Chicago, who also was not involved in the study. And now, Out of Pocket by Ben Zimmer. Unavailable, strapped for cash, or going wild. What does it mean to be out-of-pocket? There are at least a few different ways to interpret that phrase, and which generation you're in may play a large part in how you define it. For those who are millennials or older, saying you'll be out-of-pocket can simply mean that you'll be away from work and unavailable. But for members of Generation Z, being out-of-pocket can suggest acting chaotically or inappropriately. Cross-generational confusion about out-of-pocket is on display in a viral video on TikTok that has amassed approximately 2 million views since it was recently posted. In the video, TikToker at Not A Hand says, My boss, every time she's going to be out of the office for a portion of the day, not the whole day, but like for a doctor's appointment or something, she'll say, so I'm going to be out of pocket today from 1 to 2. And it just cracks me up every time because it's like, what you got to get up to, girl? This isn't the first time the generational divide has been noted. As a Washington Post quiz on Generation Z office speak last December also flagged the expression as a potential pitfall in the workplace. Long before out of pocket became a bone of contention online, the phrase had yet another, more literal meaning. The word pocket originally referred to a small pouch formed as a diminutive of poquet, an old North French word for bag. The meaning narrowed to refer to pouches sewn on garments by the 15th century, and pocket took on a financial sense, based on its use as a place to tuck away money. By the late 17th century, Paying out-of-pocket could mean using up one's own personal funds. In a 1679 account of a murder trial, 
An informer denies receiving an award, stating that he is 700 pounds out of pocket. Later on, the whole phrase could be used as an adjective for outlaying cash, with out-of-pocket expenses appearing in print as early as 1828. While out-of-pocket long referred to being financially strapped, the meaning of unavailable or out-of-reach turns out to be surprisingly old. A 1908 short story by William Sidney Porter, who used the pen name O. Henry, includes the line, Just now she is out of pocket, and I shall find her as soon as I can. Porter, who hailed from North Carolina, may have been reflecting his southern dialect. The Dictionary of American Regional English, based on the fieldwork conducted in the late 1960s, found that unavailable meaning was chiefly known in the South. That meaning started to become part of American office culture in the 1970s, right around when a new colloquial sense of the phrase was bubbling up. Slang expert Jonathan Green has tracked how out-of-pocket came to refer to acting wildly, especially when used among black Americans. Green cites the work of the social anthropologists Christina and Richard Milner, who published Black Players, a groundbreaking study of San Francisco's pimps and sex workers in 1972. The book's glossary says the phrase refers to speech or behavior which is unacceptable, out of line, not right, adding that it derives from pool room slang since on the pool table shooting a ball out of pocket causes the player to lose his turn. This unruly sense has cropped up in hip-hop lyrics at least since 1990 when Oakland's Dangerous Dame rapped, Some Punk Get Out of Pocket. That this usage is being identified as Generation Z slang illustrates how expressions originating among black Americans are frequently subject to cultural appropriation. Among the thousands of comments on Tic Tac about the phrase, one user summed up the debate well. Words can have multiple meanings and situational context matters. It's kind of just like how language works. And now, the power of your exercise mindset. If exercise seems like a great idea, but you can never keep up a routine, it's worth considering your exercise mindset, defined by psychologists as core assumptions that shape our behavior and reality. While it's long been known that mindsets can make a big difference in academic performance and navigating stress, Evidence is mounting that targeting some of our most ingrained habitual beliefs and replacing them with with more adaptive ones can rev up our ability to keep ourselves healthy. Whether they're true or false, mindsets have an impact, says Dr. Aliyah Crum, who runs the Stanford Mind and Body Lab. They change what we pay attention to, what we're motivated to do, how we feel emotionally about what we're doing, and what we decide to prioritize. For instance, maybe you've tried to shame or scare yourself into going to the gym by recounting the health risks of not moving. Or perhaps you've aimed to get active by thinking of the long-term upsides of exercise. In addition to promoting health, exercise regularly is 1.5 times more effective than medication for easing mild to moderate depression, stress, and anxiety.
Yet when it comes to exercise, reminding ourselves that something is good for us isn't always enough to get us to comply. That may be why fewer than 28% of Americans meet the exercise guidelines set by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, which call for 150 minutes of physical activity every week. While the intention of publishing more stringent exercise guidelines is to encourage people to be more active, have, they have a tendency to backfire. We have evidence showing that the whole intention of these higher guidelines is to motivate people to meet them, but it's actually having the opposite effect, according to Crum. One study found that college students and university staff who received more flexible exercise recommendations were significantly more inclined to increase their physical activity. What inspires exercise motivation, explains Crum, a former NCAA Division I athlete, are your beliefs about whether what you're doing is adequate and how you view the process of exercise. Do you think of it as fun and social or boring and painful? In a landmark study back in 2007, Crum experimented with the power of mindset on a group of hotel room attendants who spent their days vacuuming and changing sheets but didn't necessarily consider themselves active. When researchers congratulated half the group for not only meeting but exceeding the surgeon's general recommendations for an active lifestyle, a month later that group showed a decrease in blood pressure and weight compared with a control group who didn't receive positive encouragement. Of course, perception alone isn't everything. Be aware of your mindset, then work to change that to a more adaptive way of thinking in addition to doing activity, advises Crum. A study she co-authored with Dr. Octavia Zart, involving more than 61,000 Americans, found that regardless of how much exercise people got, those who perceived themselves as less active than their peers were significantly more likely to die than those who thought they were more active. When we tell people, hey, you're doing a lot right now, that motivates them to do more, Crum said. In contrast, thinking about exercise in all or nothing terms, I need at least 30 minutes or there's no point, is the enemy of consistency. You want to adapt the mindset that any and all movement is worth it and everything counts, says Dr. Michelle Seegar, a sustainable change researcher at the University of Michigan and the author of The Joy Choice, How to Finally Achieve Lasting Changes in Eating and Exercise. Even a quick walk in the middle of a hectic day is a deposit towards your well-being. If that doesn't resonate with your perfectionist tendencies, consider whether those tendencies have worked for you. Though rigid standards may help some people, for many others they backfire creating a vicious cycle of failure. Besides bringing generosity and flexibility to how you view your movement, changing your why for getting active can also help sustain your motivation. Rather than seeing workouts as a way to burn calories or lose weight, which can perpetuate self-criticism, it can help to focus on more immediately gratifying reasons to do it, like clearing your mind or feeling less stressed, according to Seagar. Approaching the process of exercise as something that's appealing and even indulgent makes a difference. The key, said researchers, is to focus on the pleasure that exercise can bring, 
then pick an activity that is actually rewarding. People tend to say that health is their primary motivator for exercise, but that's actually a poor driver of lasting motivation, says Seagar, who found that changing her mindset helped her to keep up her running routine in all sorts of weather. Instead of feeling annoyed when it began to pour when I was running, I got curious on what it would feel like to move in the rain, she explains. That helped her savor the experience. Framing exercise as appealing even helps to motivate people who might find physical activity painful, such as those with osteoarthritis in the knees. Richard Bernstein, a Michigan Supreme Court justice, was born blind and lives with ongoing chronic pain after a serious accident. Yet he has completed 25 marathons and an Ironman triathlon, even with a notably demanding work schedule. When asked how he does it, he acknowledges that it all began by changing his mindset. I always had a view that athletics was something I would never be able to do. It was for the cool kids. It was for the leaders, he said, describing feeling sidelined during grade school physical education classes. Then he was invited to join a meetup with Achilles International, an organization that empowers people with disabilities to participate in athletic opportunities. At first, he doubted whether this was something he was physically capable of, but the nonprofit's founder, Dr. Dick Trum, assured him that this is totally something you could do. As Bernstein found joy in running with others, his miles slowly mounted, and he fell into marathon training, which sparked the drive to do even more. Reaching a fitness goal was the last thing on my mind, he says. Exercise became associated with the delight of being outdoors and the camaraderie of others. He's found that the process sparks a cycle of flourishing. Athletics is almost spiritual in a way. It allows you to be strong. It allows you to push forward. It allows you to find that inner strength. The more I move, the better I actually feel. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.